Gresham College presents Did Sir Walter Scott Invent Scotland? by Dr. Juliet Shields. All right. Uh, thank you very much for um, inviting me to give this talk. It's really um, a pleasure and an honour. So, did Walter Scott invent Scotland? Walter Scott, shown here at work in his study, was called by his early 19th century readers the magician of the North. His supposed invention of Scotland does indeed seem like an act of magic. Through his poems and novels, Scott created an image of Scotland that's still alive and well today, even though very few people read his novels and still fewer his poems. His is a Scotland of sublime highland landscapes, punctuated by dark lochs and splendid castles, and peopled by courageous heroes in kilts, fighting battles we already know they'll lose. It's a Scotland that flourishes on shortbread tins in Edinburgh's Royal Mile and in Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series from which this um, picture of a brooding Scot uh, against a dramatic highland landscape is taken. The belief that, Scotland, that Scott was the inventor of this Scotland has a long history. In August of 1871, on the centenary of Scott's birth, Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine featured an essay celebrating his achievements. It declares that only a hundred years ago, there was no Scott in Scotland. No Scott! No genius of the mountain shedding color and light upon their mighty slopes. No herald of past glory sounding his clarion out of the heart of the ancient ages. No kindly, soft-beaming light of affectionate insight brightening the lowland cottages. No highland emigration could depopulate these dearest hills and glens as they are depopulated by this mere imagination. A hundred years ago, they were bare and naked. Nay, they were not, except to here and there, a wandering, hasty passenger. The writer of this panegyric, a woman named Margaret Oliphant, to whom I'll return later, suggests that without Scott, Scotland would be literally unimaginable, a void to most Britons. As Oliphant recognised, nations are not merely political entities. They're also, in the words of Benedict Anderson, imagined communities, the members of which are bound together by the shared stories they tell about themselves. Literature thus plays a central part in creating the amorphous collection of beliefs, values, and traditions that we call national identity. The novel, which emerged in Europe in the 18th century and came into its own in the 19th, has been particularly important in the formation of national identities because it's been one of the most accessible and um, affordable forms of literature. And as you'll see, uh, economics had a lot to do with Walter Scott's invention of Scotland. Oliphant acknowledges the novel's significance in creating a Scottish identity when she points out that not only was there no Walter Scott in Scotland a century ago, there were no novels. And a hundred years ago, the past history of Scotland was a ground for polemics only, for the contentions of a few historical fanatics and the investigations of antiquarians. Not a glowing and picturesque past in which all the world might rejoice, a region sounding with music and brilliant with colour, as living as our own and far more captivating in the sheen and brightness of romance than the sober-tinted present. According to Oliphant and many other 19th century readers then, Walter Scott did indeed invent Scotland, or at least one version of it. The first part of my talk today will investigate in greater detail exactly how he did that. The second part will survey versions of Scotland depicted by a few other 19th century novelists 
and I'll ask why these versions lost out historically and suggest why it might be important to recover them. So part one is called Scott's Great Invention. Walter Scott first made his mark in the literary world not as a writer, but as an antiquarian. In 1802, he published Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border, a collection of ballads he gathered during his rise through the borders as sheriff deputy for Selkirk. Scott presented this hugely popular collection of songs and ballads to the reading public as a repository of tradition. But already his creative impulse was at work. He improved upon his raw materials by changing words, inserting new stanzas, mending rhymes and rhythms, and fusing together various versions of songs. Although we might look askance at these practices as damaging the authenticity of his materials, we should also remember that ballads are malleable and often exist in multiple versions. In a sense, Scott was only doing what had happened naturally over time when songs and stories were passed from one person to another. The success of the minstrelsy inspired Scott's first major narrative poem, a tale of 16th century border rivalry interwoven with legends of the wizard Michael Scott and his goblin servant Gilpin Horner. The Lay of the Last Minstrel, published in 1805, enjoyed unprecedented sales for a work of poetry and brought Scott instant fame. The description of the moonlit Melrose Abbey in Canto 2, stanza 1, brought a stream of sightseers to its ruins and was the first instance of Scott's immense impact on Scotland's tourist industry. And uh, the famous lines describing Melrose are, um, if thou wouldst view fair Melrose ar aright, go visit it by the pale moonlight, then view St. David's ruined pile, and home returning, soothly swear, was never seen so sad and fair. And you can maybe just see at the bottom of this early 19th century print, um, these little figures are tourists enjoying um, the abbey by moonlight. The Lay's success determined the line that Scott's work was to take for the next nine years as he produced a series of major narrative poems. Marmion, in 1808, described Scotland's defeat at Flodden Field. The Lady of the Lake, published in 1810, dramatized the 16th century struggle between King James V and the powerful clan Douglas. With 25,000 copies sold in eight months, The Lady of the Lake broke all records for the sale of poetry and created a tourist vogue for Loch Katrine and the Trossachs that still continues to some extent today and the scenery, too, is very little changed today. Um, again, you can see in this early 19th century print uh, that the landscape is dotted with tourists enjoying the scene of Scott's poetry. Elizabeth Spence, author of a travel guide called Sketches of the Present Manners, Customs, and Scenery of Scotland, warned those traveling to Loch Katrine in 1811, right after the publication of the poem, that the demand for conveyances to the scenes described by Scott was so high that they should hire a carriage well in advance of their arrival or risk missing out. And it looks like these people have at least got a horse, if not a carriage. The Lady of the Lake was unusual among Scott's poems in that reviewers were as enthusiastic about it as the general reading public. Scott wrote to entertain. And you may have noticed when I was reading uh, those lines um, from the... Uh, lay of the Last Minstrel, that the rhythm of his poem, is his poetry tends to be very kind of um, predictable, da -dum, da -dum, da -dum, 
Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. Um, so he wasn't really uh, gifted as a versifier as much as he was as a teller of stories in verse. Um, and his aim was to provide readers with a gripping tale in verse rather than to inquire into the depths of the human psyche like Samuel Taylor Coleridge or to reflect upon the splendors of the natural world like William Wordsworth. Thus, Thomas Carlyle would lament after Scott's death that in this 19th century, our highest literary man, who immeasurably beyond all others commanded the world's ear, had, as it were, no message whatever to deliver to the world, wished not the world to elevate itself, to amend itself, to do this or to do that, except simply pay him for the books he kept writing. And that it did. But if critics like Carlyle missed food for thought in Scott's poems, the reading public ate them up and they far outsold Wordsworth and Coleridge's lyrical ballads. It was only when Lord Byron took to writing long narrative poetry in um, 1812 with Child Harold's Pilgrimage that Scott saw sales of his poetry begin to decline. This inspired him to try his hand at a new form, one that lent itself to his narrative impulse, the novel. This was a risky move on Scott's part. Whereas poetry had long been considered high art, the novel, as a comparative newcomer on the literary scene, was regarded as little more than popular trash, suitable reading matter only for women and children. Scott chose to publish his first novel, Waverly, or to 60 years since, anonymously, in order to protect his literary and professional reputation, as writing fiction wouldn't have been regarded as an appropriate pastime for a principal law clerk at the Court of Session, a post that signified legal erudition and authority. The manuscript of Waverley was copied out by Scott's printer, James Ballantyne, so that even the men who composed the type on the printing press didn't know the author's identity. Only those closest to Scott were let into the secret of his authorship, though many readers came to suspect it. Scott's novels would continue to be issued anonymously or pseudonymously with several different publishing houses until 1827, when Scott admitted his authorship at a public dinner. The mystery surrounding the authorship of the Waverley novels undoubtedly contributed to their popularity and to their seeming authenticity, as Scott, in telling the stories, posed as a range of quirky but knowledgeable figures, such as the parish clerk of Ganderclee, Jedediah Kleischbotham, whose occupation made him a repository of stories. And if we take a look at a few of the title pages of um, Scott's novels, you can see the first one, Waverly, or it is 60 years since, appears without any author identified, right? Um, There's a quotation, but uh, no name. By the time that Rob Roy is published in 1818, uh, the novel is identified as by the author of Waverly, And the author of Waverly became a kind of identity in itself. Um, If we take a look at Tales of My Landlord, also published in 1818, so you can see just how busy Scott was cranking these things out, um, it is attributed to Jedediah Kleischbotham, parish clerk of Ganderclee. So Scott was actually competing with himself in the literary marketplace as one of his fictions appeared by Jedediah Kleischbotham and another by the author of Waverly. Following the publication of Waverley in 1814, Scott wrote during a five-year period a further eight novels set in 17th or 18th century Scotland. It's through these works that Scott can be said to have invented Scotland. To understand just how he did this, 
I'm going to return for a moment to the essay by Margaret Oliphant with which I began this talk. She explains that before the publication of the Waverley novels, the past history of Scotland was ground for polemics only, for the contentions of a few historical fanatics and the investigations of antiquarians. Now, Scott's novels took as some of their subjects the, the most contentious moments of Scottish history, the 1715 and 1745 Jacobite rebellions, the transformation of James VI into, of Scotland into James I of Britain at the Union of Crowns, and the Covenanters' resistance to the Stuart monarchy's Erastianism. Yet rather than stirring up these conflicts, as Oliphant's historical fanatics might, Scott laid them to rest, in part by transforming political into cultural differences. Scott remarks at the end of Waverley, there is no European nation which within the course of half a century or little more has undergone so complete a change as this kingdom of Scotland. Attributing this change to the suppression of the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, which is um, the event that Waverley describes 60 years since, he fondly recalls those who, in my younger time, were facetiously called folk of the old leaven, who still cherished a lingering though hopeless attachment to the House of Stuart. This race has almost entirely vanished from the land, and with it, doubtless, much absurd political prejudice but also many living examples of singular and disinterested attachment to the principles of loyalty which they received from their fathers and of old Scottish faith, hospitality, worth, and honour. He goes on to explain that he wrote Waverley for the purpose of preserving some idea of the ancient manners of which I've witnessed the almost total extinction. I have embodied in imaginary scenes and ascribed to fictitious characters a part of the incidents which I then received from those who were actors in them. Scott represented his aim in Waverley as very similar to his project in the minstrelsy of the Scottish border, to collect and preserve in print traditions that would otherwise be lost. Moreover, he sought to reconcile this carefully preserved Scottish past with a British present. Waverley strikes a judicious balance between acknowledging the virtues of the past, the loyalty, courage, and honor embodied in Fergus MacIver and his Highland clan, while also celebrating the progress that led to a more enlightened present in which law has replaced violence and reason has overcome passion. The Waverley novels differentiated Scotland in cultural terms from England, attributing to Scots virtues and traditions they could take pride in without threatening the political unity that had existed when Scott wrote for little more than a century. Now, Scott's novels are not known for their engaging love stories, but he carefully intertwined the marriage plot with his account of historical events to emphasize British unity in symbolic terms. Waverley, again, provides an instructive example, so for those of you who haven't read it recently or at all, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis here. Its hero, Edward Waverley, is a young Englishman whose ideals have been shaped by a lonely childhood spent reading tales of chivalry and romance in the dusty library at his uncle's estate of Waverley Honour. In 1745, when his father obtains him a rather ill-timed commission in the army, Waverley is sent to Scotland. During a period of military leave, Waverley visits his uncle's friend, the Baron Bradwardine, whose estate, Tully Veolan, is situated near Perth, where the lowlands meet the highlands. Although Waverley enjoys the company of the Baron's lovely daughter, Rose, his desire for adventure leads him further north to Glenacoich, 
home to the young chieftain Fergus MacIver, the living embodiment of all Waverley's ideals of heroism. Waverley's admiration for Fergus is surpassed only by his adoration of Fergus's sister, Flora, who enchants him with her heart playing and impresses him with her intense devotion to the Jacobite cause. And here, um, this illustration is taken from a book of illustrations to the Waverley novels, published separately from the novels themselves. Um, and you can see Flora posed by a waterfall with her harp, um, standing in for all that was exotic and attractive about the Highlands to Edward Waverley. Fergus and Flora win Waverley to their side by appealing to his romantic sensibilities, even though reason tells him that Charles Edward Stuart's attempt to capture the British throne is doomed to failure. And here again, you can see Edward Waverley pledging his allegiance to the young pretender. And um, next to him, this is Fergus MacIver. You can see his comparative scruffiness um, in uh, relation to the young pretender, his beard and and whatnot are intended to show that he is um, slightly more primitive, not as polished, um, and his men are correspondingly even less polished than he is. So after this motley gang of Highlanders is defeated by the king's army, the vivid attractions of Flora's zeal eventually give way to the more sedate charms of the politically neutral Rose Bradwardine, who twice rescues the hapless Waverley from dangerous or compromising situations. Waverley and Rose share a desire for domestic tranquility that's at odds with uh, the drama of the Jacobite uprising. And when they marry, they, ret they retreat to the now war-ravaged estate of Tully Veolan. The marriage of the English Waverley and the Scottish Rose has been interpreted as a symbol of Anglo-Scottish union. However, it's important to note that this British unity is predicated on the defeat of the Jacobite cause and arguably excludes the, the Scottish Highlands. By the novel's end, Fergus has been executed, Flora has taken refuge in a French convent, and those Highlanders that have survived the Battle of Culloden are left without a chief, the ragged remnants of a once glorious feudal society. While celebrating the courage and loyalty engendered by this feudal society, Waverley and its successors encouraged readers to regard the Highlands as the site of history. To cross the Highland line was to go back in time, and tourists flocked to Scotland in the hopes of seeing primitive ways of life before they disappeared. As Scott depicted them, the Highlands seemed to offer an escape from the socioeconomic problems and environmental blight created by 19th century urbanization and industrialization. There flourished the primitive virtues that the modern world seemed to have destroyed. Queen Victoria, one of Scott's most celebrated admirers perpetuated this distorted image of the Highlands in a journal entry that describes a day spent near Loch Lomond in 1869. The scene of our drive today, she writes, is all described in Rob Roy. High, rugged and green hills, very fine large trees and beautiful pink heather, interspersed with bracken, rocks and underwood in the most lovely profusion, and Ben Lomond towering up before us with its noble range. Hardly a creature did we meet, and we passed merely a very few pretty gentlemen's places, or very poor cottages with simple women and barefooted long-haired lassies and children, quiet and unassuming old men and laborers. This solitude, the romance and wild loveliness of everything here, 
the absence of hotels and beggars, the independent people who all speak Gaelic here, all make beloved Scotland the proudest, finest country in the world. Now, in this painting um, by Landseer of Victoria at Loch Lagan in 1847, you can see um, the distance that she keeps from the Highland servant. Uh, obviously, this is because she's the queen and he is a servant, but that distance kind of permeates all of her descriptions of the Highlands. So she's seeing them not as a, as a kind of... Um, participant, but as a spectator, uh, deeply removed from what she's looking at. The Gaelic-speaking laborers are, for the queen, merely part of a picturesque landscape, as are their very poor cottages, and she doesn't pause to consider the possible causes of their poverty. Similarly, seeing the landscape through the lens of Scott's works meant that tourists were likely to overlook the real reasons for the Highlands' solitude landowners forced eviction of their tenants, whom they replaced with more profitable inhabitants, such as sheep or deer, as we see in this painting of 1860, where now there is nobody in the landscape at all um, compared to all those little tourists we saw earlier, uh, just a shepherd and his sheep. While few of Scott's readers are as well known today as Queen Victoria, it's fair to say that to have been alive and literate in the 19th century was to have been affected in some way by the Waverley novels. At a time when the average print run of a new novel was 750 copies, each of the Waverley novels commanded an initial print run of between 6,000 and 10,000 copies. And libraries in London reported ordering between 50 and 70 copies of each novel as it appeared in order to meet borrowers' demands. The Waverley novels were a commercial success in part because, as studies of their publication history have shown, Scott achieved an ownership of the whole literary production and distribution process, from author to reader, controlling the editing, the publishing, and the printing of the books, the reviewing in the local literary press, and the adaptations for theatre. The magician of the North, as Scott was known, was also an entrepreneur, a curator, and a manufacturer, shaping Scotland's cultural identity through his involvement in every aspect of the Waverley novel's production and marketing. New developments in the printing industry and in copyright law also extended the reach of the novels by making it possible to issue them in ever cheaper formats well into the 19th century. In the late 1820s, the creation of stereotype plates made it feasible to issue the novels in weekly parts, producing a huge surge in sales and introducing a new class of readers to Walter Scott's Scotland. By the middle of the 19th century, Scott was, by several orders of magnitude, the author whose works had sold the largest number of copies in the English-speaking world. Even those aspects of literary culture that Scott couldn't control directly attest to his influence. The Waverley novels inspired numerous imitations and responses, some of which, like John Galt's Tales of the West, have become respected literary works in their own right. Others, like the spurious Tales of My Landlady, an imitation of Scott's Tales of My Landlord, are best forgotten. In 1820, a novel called Scotch Novel Reading by Sarah Green illustrated the pervasiveness of these Waverley knockoffs through its protagonist, Alice, a Londoner who declares herself addicted to reading Scotch novels of all kinds. 
Alice dresses in tartan, attempts to speak Scots, and dreams of visiting Scotland until she meets some real Highlanders, dirty, uncouth, and incomprehensible, who put an end to her obsession. These barbaric Highlanders are themselves stereotypes with a long history, as you can see um, from this 1779 cartoon by J James Gilray. It's called Sonny on the Bog House, and poor Sonny doesn't know how to use the bog house properly and has put his legs into the toilet holes. So Sarah Green was obviously um, picking up on images like this in Scotch novel reading, but to be fair... The novel suggests that some of Scott's contemporaries recognized the Waverley novels, romanticized representations of Scotland for what they were, that is, romanticized. Yes, it wasn't until the early 20th century that a new generation of Scots readers began to perceive the Waverley novel's romanticization of Scotland's past as detrimental to its development in the present. In the wake of the Great War, a predominantly socialist group of Scottish writers sought to foster a more robust, forward-looking nationalism in place of Scott's aristocratic nostalgia. Hugh McDermott, one of the leading figures of the Scottish literary renaissance, found Scott intolerably prolix, dull, and full of false romanticism, which is an assessment my students most definitely agree with, concluding that he had no profound and progressive sense of um, his country. McDermott's close contemporary, Edwin Muir, bitterly termed Scott and Robert Burns sham bards of a sham nation and accused Scott of transforming all of Scottish history into legend, mainly tawdry. This view of Scott has by no means disappeared. For instance, in 1991, one of the foremost scholars of Scottish literature charged Scott with transforming Scotland into a museum of history and culture, denuded of the political dynamic which must keep such culture alive and developing. And in 2002... Mike Watson, the then member of Scottish Parliament for Tourism, Culture and Sport, gave a speech in which he recognised Scott's success in putting Scotland on the international map, but also acknowledged that the cultural images and identity created by Scott have, in a sense, been too successful. I've suggested here that this success was at least in part due to the immense control that Scott exerted during his lifetime over the production and marketing of his novels. If his romanticized version of Scotland has won out over others, it's not simply because of its attractiveness or its correctness. By blending history with romance, Scott masculinized and raised the status of the novel, a genre that had previously been regarded as lowly because it was primarily written for and by women. This isn't to say that Scott put women novelists out of business. After all, Jane Austen, Mary Shelley, and Mariah Edgeworth were among his contemporaries. But between 1815 and 1825, when the Waverley craze was at its peak, a net rise in the annual publication of novels nationwide was accompanied by a proportional decline in female authorship, a pattern which was even more marked in Scotland than in England. But the mid-19th century saw a resurgence of women writers, and some of them, I'm going to suggest, offered alternatives to the Scotland that Walter Scott had invented. Writers of the early 20th century Scottish literary renaissance, McDermott and, um, such as McDermott and Edwin Muir, overlooked these women in their search for a history of Scottish literature that might found, found, form the foundations of their nationalism. They focused their vitriol instead on the men who were influenced by Scott, 
For instance, Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Kidnapped and the Master of Ballantrae, John Buchan, author of The 39 Steps and Green Mantle, and S.R. Crockett and J.M. Barrie, writers of the sentimental sketches known as Kailyard fiction. The women who wrote between the death of Scott and the Scottish literary renaissance in the 1920s thus fell into a kind of literary historical void from which I hope to recover them, and that's what I am doing on my Fulbright at the National Library. Unlike Sarah Green's Scotch novel reading, these women didn't attack Scott's romanticised version of Scotland head-on. Instead, they turned from his sweeping historical vistas to the details of mundane domestic life. This in itself offered readers new perspectives on Scotland. There are very few depictions of the everyday in the Waverley novels because they're always set at moments of intense crisis. Francis Jeffrey, a critic for the Edinburgh Review, had in 1817 identified as one of Scott's weaknesses his descriptions of virtuous young ladies and his representations of the ordinary business of conversation in polished life. It was precisely in the ordinary business of the domestic sphere, the natural habitat of virtuous young ladies, that Scott's female successors located Scottish identity. So part two is um, called Other Scotland's Other Futures. And for the remainder of this talk, I'm going to briefly turn to some of these versions of Scotland um, offered by Scott's successors, tracing their gradual deflation and diminishment of his romantic vision over the course of the 19th century. And I should warn you that the, the shortage of slides in the second part of this talk um, shows how poorly these alternative versions of Scotland um, have fared. There really isn't much out there um, that illustrates anything other than uh, sweeping romantic vistas. So I apologize for that in advance. The first of my examples, a novel called Clan Albin by Christian Isabel Johnston, was published in 1815, hot on the heels of Waverley. But it's in many ways the antithesis of Waverley, refusing to romanticize either the Highlands or the military conflicts that Scott tends to glamorize. Clanalbin describes the clearance of the McAlban clan from their home in Glenalbin and the ultimate repopulation of the Glen through the efforts of its chief Norman. So clearances are something that never show up in um, the Waverley novels. The wool shortage caused by Britain's lengthy war with France convinces Colonel Gordon, the current owner of Glenalbin, that replacing his tenants with sheep will increase his profits. Gordon, a lowlander, has purchased the estate through a legal sleight of hand after the McAlbans' participation in the Jacobite Rebellion led to its forfeiture. Johnston implies that Gordon doesn't understand or value the ties of loyalty and obligation that have long united landowners and tenants in the Highlands. So she goes into the, economic, um, the economics behind the clearances in some detail. At the novel's end, though, Norman, the rightful chief, triumphantly redeems his family's estate, but the McAlban clan is now happy in their new home in Canada, where they've reestablished the ways of life that they once enjoyed in the Highlands. So Norman instead opens the glen to Highlanders from other clans who have been forced from their homes and who don't wish to emigrate. Clan Alban's ending is obviously fantastic wish fulfillment, and it seems a very far cry from the everyday experience on which, according to my argument, women writers tended to focus. Yet for Johnston, one of the major evils of the clearances was that they disrupted a kind of timeless everyday. 
the traditional ways of Highland life that the novel describes in lovingly ethnographic detail, from the preparation of meals to the education of children. Clan Albin effectively reverses the background and foreground of Waverley, making domestic life the focus against which political events occur. By representing contemporary, that is um, early 19th century, everyday life in the Highlands, Johnston showed her lowland and English readers that Highlanders really weren't much different from other Britons. And in showing that the Highlands, far from being frozen in time, were affected by the military and economic agenda of a government situated in metropolitan England, she hoped to incite readers' indignation against the landowners who forcibly evicted Highland, land, Highland families from their homes. While the Highlands remained a popular setting for novels throughout the 19th century, Scott's female successors, including Margaret Oliphant, probably the most famous, um, Henrietta Keddy and Annie S. Swan, began to turn towards Scotland's urban industrial landscapes, presenting to their readers new versions of Scottish life. It shouldn't really be surprising that these writers set their novels in the slums of Glasgow, the jute, mills of, the jute factories of Dundee, or the pit towns that sprang up around the coal mines near the borders, if we consider that English novelists, such as Elizabeth Gaskell and Charles Dickens, were also exploring the effects of industrialization on the middle and working classes. Yet literary scholars continue to insist that there was no Scottish equivalent to what's known as the Condition of England novel. Works that, like North and South or Hard Times, examine the conflicts between factory owners and workers, or depict the effects of urban blight on the minds and bodies of city dwellers. Margaret Oliphant's Harry Muir, A Story of Scottish Life, published in 1852, is just one of several novels you haven't heard of that might be designated a Condition of Scotland novel. It's set in Port Dundas, and this is a mid-19th century print of Port Dundas, um, an area of Glasgow that in the 19th century was home to textile mills, chemical works, glass works, and iron foundries. And you can see uh, those factories in the foreground here and the masts of ships um, on the canal in the background. Interestingly, in Oliphant's novel, Port Dundas is primarily the realm of women, who labor in these mills, factories, and foundries. In the streets, their little stout round forms, faces sometimes sallow but by no means unhealthy, hair dressed with extreme regard to the fashion and always excellently brushed and in the finest order, made these passengers in their colored woolen petticoats and bright short gowns a very comely part of the street population. And here, um, this photo is taken a good 30 years after the publication of Oliphant's novel, but it shows some of the um, mill workers that she is writing about in that passage. The subtitle of Oliphant's novel, A Story of Scottish Life, would likely have evoked certain expectations in readers only 20 years after Scott's death. Anticipating a story set in the grandeur of the Highlands and featuring adventure and intrigue, these readers might have been disappointed in passages like the description of the mill girls, which could just as easily be set in the streets of Manchester or Liverpool. Yet Oliphant doesn't lament the homogenization of Britain as industrialization made one city much like another. Instead, she suggests that distinctive Scottishness is to be found in the details of everyday life. Not only does she turn from the sublime highlands to the industrial lowlands, 
she also turns from the grand events of history to mundane domesticity, where markers of Scottish cultural identity are to be found. For instance, Oliphant provides a striking depiction of women's work in a tenement house on the Port Dundas Road. On the top floor, Rose and Martha Muir are embroidering cuffs and collars to be attached to factory-made dresses. As they work, their youngest sister, Violet, recites page after page of the Bridal of Triermaine, one of Scott's narrative poems. On the floor beneath them, Aggie Rogers, who attaches these elaborately embroidered collars and cuffs to the factory-made dresses, stayed her needle in mid-course while she accompanied the Rose of Allendale. On the stoop outside the ground floor of the tenement, Maggie McGillivray, who, as Oliphant tells us, is employed to clip the loose threads from webs of worked muslin, sings one of Robert Burns's songs, The Lee Rig, with a gay flourish of her shears accompanying every verse. This scene emphasizes the commonality of these women's lot, despite the differences in station indicated by the types of needlework they do to support themselves and their families. The tenement has become a domestic factory of sorts, contributing to the textile industries for which Glasgow and Paisley were renowned in the 19th century. There's no romance in the women's unremitting toil, but they find it instead in the songs and stories of courtship that accompany their work and that mark the scene as distinctly Scottish. Oliphant's description of Glasgow women's work in Harry Muir is a far cry from the Battle of Bothwell Brig in Scott's Old Mortality or the castle raids in Rob Roy, both in its urban setting and in the scale of its action. But my final example of an alternative to Scott's Scotland, Mary Findlater's Rose of Joy, published in 1903, offers an even greater diminution of the Waverley novel's grandeur while returning us to a rural setting. Mary Finlitter and her sister Jane, um, pictured here, co-authored a number of novels, uh, and they explored in their fiction the very limited opportunities that rural Scotland could offer even the most resourceful of women who wanted something more than marriage and motherhood. Much as Oliphant offered a Scottish alternative to the Condition of England novel, the Findlater sisters' concerns had an English counterpart in the so-called New Woman novels by Sarah Grand and Mona Caird, which challenged the dominant belief that women's proper place is in the home. Susan, the protagonist of The Rose of Joy, lives in a tiny village called Bury Bush, a spot forlorn, forgotten, far away, with no past history beyond the dulled recollections of its oldest crone, where all that was modern was its vulgarity. In this village without a past or a future, Susan's life followed the ordinary course of too many women's lives, a course of domestic drudgery. She, cares, she struggles to care for her numerous younger siblings and her helpless widowed mother, until she accepts her cousin Dally's proposal of marriage, simply because she can't bear to live on at home. But Susan has an artist's eye, and although she has scarcely the commonest comforts of life in other ways, Finlater informs us, she can make a meal off the colour of the sea. Whereas Dally, who finds Bury Bush and its environs intolerably dull, turns to unsavoury sources of pleasure that eventually destroy their marriage, Susan draws filling notebooks with buds, leaves, the heads of marsh rushes, a blue beetle, a snail shell with its black whirl design, butterflies, a twig with the purple coming of spring, 
sometimes a landscape so small that you could have covered it with a penny. The scale and detail of Susan's drawings resemble that of Mary Finletter's writing, as her novel explores a circumscribed world in intricate detail. Theirs isn't the sublime highland scenery portrayed in the paintings of Alexander Naismith or the novels of Walter Scott. For as the narrator remarks bluntly, the sphere of the village is a small one. But Findlater implies that there's as much beauty to be enjoyed in a perfectly rendered representation of a beetle as in a panoramic view of the Trossachs. Susan's world is indeed small compared to the sweeping landscapes through which Edward Waverley moves, but it contains more than enough beauty to satisfy her once she realises that she can support herself through her artwork. Walter Scott famously wrote in his journal after reading Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, the big bow-wow strain, I can do myself like any now going, but the exquisite touch which renders ordinary commonplace things and characters interesting from the truth of the description and the sentiment is denied to me. Findlater's Rose of Joy shows readers the beauties of rural Scotland through ordinary commonplace things, the antithesis of the Waverley novel's big bow-wow strain. The three novels I've mentioned briefly here, Clan Albin, Harry Muir, and The Rose of Joy, are so different from each other that it seems in many ways odd to lump them together. But they share in common the aim of deromanticizing and diminishing the grandiose and idealized image of Scotland created in Scott's Waverley novels. In their own time, the women whose novels I've discussed here were well-known and respected literary figures. So why are they virtually unknown now? And why have the representations of Scotland fared so poorly over time compared to Scots? Possibly their novels weren't as good as Scots. Possibly their representations of Scotland weren't as aesthetically pleasing as Scots. But these explanations, I suggest, are too simple. They beg the question of why Scott Scotland has remained so appealing for so long, well after his novels ceased to be popular or even to be read. Judgments about literary value are rarely disinterested or objective, and it's often been the case, historically, that some literary works win out over others for ideological reasons. If representations of grimy industrial Scotland or dull agricultural Scotland weren't as influential over the long term in shaping readers' perceptions of the nation, it's not just because they weren't as attractive, but also because they weren't as politically useful, either for Scots or for Britain as a whole. The Waverley novel's romanticized version of Scotland was attractive to Scots because it gave them a cultural identity distinct from England's, one that transcended differences of class, religion, and political party. It was useful to the continued unity of the British state because it assigned Scotland a valuable contributing role as the bastion of traditional ways of life and unspoiled nature, while legitimating a more civilized and progressive England's role as governing authority. But as the unity of the British state becomes increasingly questionable in the wake of devolution and with the possibility of a second referendum on Scottish independence, as the newspapers tell us this morning, um, becoming likely, uh, it is arguably useful to turn to these long-neglected alternative versions of Scotland, versions that are less grandiose than Scots, but perhaps more serviceable for their lack of grandeur. If nations are indeed imagined communities, then surely it's wise to exercise our imaginations broadly. The more versions of its history a nation has, the greater are its possibilities in shaping the future. Thanks.
For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.